Now I'm going to shift, having said the background, having discussed the origins of the conflict, and now having set uh, out the mandate in terms of subject matter, temporal, and territorial jurisdiction of the tribunal, and describe some of the key features to now the trials conducted by the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Once its treaty entered into force in April 2002, and sufficient funds had been raised for its operations to begin, and remember, this court was funded by donations of UN member states, the then Secretary General Annan appointed the first prosecutor and the first registrar of the tribunal. So David Crane from the United States was the prosecutor, was appointed on April 17, 2002, and then the registrar, Robin Vincent, from the United Kingdom on June 10, 2002. They both took up their assignments by August 2002. Subsequently, in December 2002, we had the judges who had been appointed in the interim by the UN and Sierra Leone, and they took the oath of office. And with record speed, literally around March 2003, and you're looking at less than a year time frame, actually just months, the prosecutor had carried out some investigations and unveiled applications for 13 indictments of largely military and political leaders drawn from the three main warring factions in the Sierra Leone conflict. Those are the factions that we talked about earlier, the RUF, the AFRC, and the CDF. The suspects comprised the mutinying elements of the National Army, the AFRC, again, Armed Forces Revolutionary Council, the Civil Defense Forces, the CDF, militia, and then, of course, the Revolutionary United Front rebels. Most of the indictees were arrested without any difficulty because they were based in Sierra Leone. And again, I pause here for a moment because that has not been the experience of all international tribunals. Oftentimes, and we see the international criminal court struggling with this because countries refuse to turn over the defendants, the trials cannot even begin. So we have essentially almost a crisis point now for the international criminal court with the majority of its outstanding uh, arrest warrants not being enforced by states. So in Sierra Leone, because most of the defendants were in the country, they just turned them over to the tribunal. Now, the RUF and the CDF cases were heard by the judges of Trial Chamber 1, while the AFRC and later the Taylor case were entrusted to the judges of Trial Chamber 2. Now, in the first of the SESL cases to conclude, where three AFRC commanders, namely Alex Tamba Brimer, was the first accused, second accused, Brimer Bazi Kamara, and the third accused, Santigi Bobo Kano. This is known as the AFRC case, even though it's very important from a legal point of view that it was not the organization, the group that was prosecuted, the individuals associated with the group were prosecuted. Very, very fine distinction, but an important one. So the group was not charged or prosecuted, the individuals were, even though we call it the AFRC case for short. Now, between March 7, 2003 and September 16, 2003, Brima, Kamara, and Kanu were separately indicted on 17 counts of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other serious violations of international humanitarian law. About a year later, their separate indictments were amended and the charges reduced to 14 counts. That's still a lot of counts. At the prosecution's request, the trial chamber ordered the joint trials of the three men on February 18, 2005. A consolidated indictment containing the 14 counts was later approved. And the trial went on to open in Freetown a year later on March 7, 2005, and eight months later, the prosecution case had been completed. Then began, on June 5, 2006, the defense case, which closed at the end of October 2006. At that point, the accused had called 87 witnesses. Three accused had called 87 witnesses in their defense. 
final oral arguments were heard in the first week of December 2006. The judges of trial chamber two found all three men guilty of 11 out of the 14 counts of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other serious violations of international humanitarian law on the 28th of June 2007. So that was the day on which the three AFRC accused were convicted. On July 19, 2007, the three men were sentenced to prison terms of 50 years each for Brahma and Kanu and 45 years for Kamara. Now, I could say in parentheses here, these are fairly long sentences for international tribunals, and I'll come back to that point later on. In any event, the defendants appealed, and the appeals chamber upheld all the sentences on February 22, 2008, and the logic of the appeals chamber in upholding the decision was essentially that the judges had a right to take into account the gravity, the horrific nature of what the men had been involved in in Sierra Leone. And the trial chamber, in their judgment, emphasized that some of the things that had occurred in Sierra Leone were unspeakable. So they were sentencing these men to high sentences to make that point, to try to send a message to them for the sake of the victims and also to send a message to others that they should not engage in this kind of behavior and that if they do, the international community would ensure that there's accountability. So leaving aside the AFRC group of cases, the three men there, the SCSL completed the joint trials of six others from the CDF and the RUF militia groups. They are split evenly, three cases for each of the CDF, that being the militia group and the RUF, that being the rebels. So while Sam Hinga Norman, who I had mentioned earlier, is a former deputy defense minister in Sierra Leone, uh, while he had been indicted on March 7, 2003, his CDF compatriots, Moinina Fofana and Aliu Kondewai, are uh, indicted just over three months later in June, 2000, uh, June 26, to be more precise, 2003. And the trial chamber granted the prosecution's request for a joint trial of this man on February 28, 2004, and approved a consolidated indictment not long afterwards. The CDF trial opened on June 3, 2004, and on July 14, 2005, the prosecution closed its case. Final oral arguments only took place at the end of November 2006, so well over a year later, and the reason was this is due to the fact that the judges had to rule on the motion for judgment of acquittal, which is a motion that the defendants are entitled to raise, where they say, look, your honors, the prosecution has not given enough evidence to even subject me to this continued trial. So why don't you dismiss all the charges? The judges disagreed with them. And then, of course, there's an important element that they had to alternate the schedule of the same group of judges who were during the intervals also adjudicating, deciding upon the RUF case. So they needed some breathing room there. So on August 2nd, 2007, the trial chamber rendered the court's second judgment, finding in respect to Fofana and Kondawai, the second and third accused respectively, that each was guilty of four counts in the indictment. The two CDF accused were convicted by a majority comprised of a Canadian and a Cameroonian judge. In an interesting but really controversial twist, especially outside Sierra Leone, the lone Sierra Leonean judge on the bench, Justice Bankole Thompson, refused to convict. He wrote a rather lengthy separate opinion in which he explained that he would have acquitted the defendants because of the defense of necessity, which is known to domestic criminal law systems, including Sierra Leone, and the role that these men were playing to restore democracy to Sierra Leone. That opinion continues to be debated in Sierra Leone up to today. And I'm sure it will continue to be debated elsewhere because of the weight and the perception that Sierra Leoneans had 
that these people were fighting on their side against the killers and that they should not be punished by the court. But from the other perspective, the majority of the court said, even, you, if, even if you are fighting the good fight, your job in fighting the good fight is to ensure you comply with international law. So you cannot commit war crimes or crimes against humanity or other serious violations of international law because you happen to be fighting for a just cause. In any event, on October 9, 2007, Fofana was sentenced to six years while Kondewa received eight years. And you can think about the contrast between the sentences here in the CDF case vis-a-vis -vis the sentences in the RUF case. And I have a feeling, and I think commentators tend to agree, that the court took into account that they were fighting the good fight. So they gave them lower sentences. But they did want to find criminal responsibility for the atrocities that these men had been involved in. Now, however, when it went on appeal, the decision of the trial chamber, the judgment, the appeals chamber modified some of the grounds for the convictions, including with respect to the charge and conviction for child recruitment as a war crime. Remember that had come up before as one of the important elements of the legacy of the special court. But in perhaps the most significant part of their May 28, 2008 judgment, at least for the defendants, the appeals judges increased the sentences for Fofana to 15 years, while Kondewa was awarded 20 years. In the meantime, in the period between the close of the CDF case and the rendering of the trial judgment on August 2, 2007, the first accused, Norman, had died in a hospital in Senegal where he had been taken for medical treatment. Norman was ill, so his case had closed and they were waiting for judgment and he died in that intervening period. So as a result, in May 2007, the trial chamber terminated the proceedings against him. This is normal. I mean, you don't have charges to answer to if you are dead. Although, in a very interesting, interesting argument, the defense counsel insisted that the family wanted the judges to pronounce on Mr. Norman's guilt or innocence that the judges refused. I think correctly. In the RUF group of cases, the third group of cases, Issa Sise and Maurice Calon were indicted on March 7, 2003 on a 17-count indictment for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other serious violations of international humanitarian law. One count was later added to the indictment, and Bao was convicted on April 16, 2003. The trial chamber ordered the joint trials of the three accused on March 5, 2004, and the RUF case, which had started on July 5, 2004, with 75 witnesses testifying for the prosecution, while 85 witnesses appeared for the defense. And of course, the parties made closing submissions on August 5, 2008, and in the end, much as in the other cases, the trial chamber determined that Cisse and Calon were guilty on 16 of the 18 counts in the indictment on February 25, 2009. Bao, for his part, was found guilty on 14 counts, including for his role in machinating the abduction and holding as hostages the UN peacekeepers in May 2000. Remember the peacekeepers when we talked about the history of the conflict, the peacekeepers were 500 of them that had been abducted in northern Sierra Leone. Bao was the ringleader and the, the chamber found him responsible for that war crime. Cisse was sentenced to 52 years, Calon was awarded 40 years, while Bao was condemned to 25 years. On October 26, 2009, the appeals chamber overturned Bao's conviction on one of the counts, but other than that, they upheld the, nearly the entirety of the trial chamber findings in respect of him and the other RUF commanders, including the sentences. So we've talked about several of the main cases grouped together under the label the AFRC case, CDF case, and 
now um, we are going to turn to, and of course the REF case, but we're going to now shift to the only trial involving an individual in a sole case. That involved Charles Taylor, the former Liberian president and Sanko associate, who was the only known Sierra Leonean to be indicted by the prosecutor. He was indicted initially on a 17-count indictment that was issued again in March, in fact, on March 7th, 2003, uh, for war crimes, again, crimes against humanity and other serious violations of international humanitarian law. And of course, at that point, the indictment was sealed. This is very, very common in the International Tribunal. But the world learned about the indictment several months later, on June 4th, 2003, when the prosecution, I think a little bit hastily, announced its existence, even apparently before seeking a judicial order to make it a public document. And I guess their logic in the prosecution was they wanted to have Taylor arrested in Ghana, another West African state, where he was attending peace talks. And so they were seeking advantage of that opportunity, and I guess they felt that asking the judges to unseal the indictment would take time. But it took several years and much diplomatic wrangling between West African and other countries before Taylor was eventually arrested. Because what had happened was the Ghanaian government took affront to the way in which the prosecution had served them the indictment, and they put Mr. Taylor on a plane and sent him home. Now, ultimately, Taylor ended up resigning from the presidency in Liberia. He ended up in Nigeria, where he was given asylum by agreement of Nigeria, and that was a way to end the conflict, the horrific conflict. Over 100,000 people were killed in Liberia. And so, taking Taylor out, Nigeria was proposing to do a service so that the country will move on. But eventually, uh, for a variety of reasons, on March 29th, 2006, um, Taylor had been transferred to the court literally just a few days before. And he appeared before the court. He was arraigned uh, before the court to plead to the charges. Some concerns were then expressed about the security conditions in Liberia and Sierra Leone because both countries were emerging from the shadows of what were devastating internal conflicts. And it was speculated that Taylor, who still had a lot of supporters that were capable of engaging in violence and destabilization pretty much of both of the countries, there's a lot of speculation that this could be a fragile, fragile situation for the countries, so maybe they should take Taylor out. And in what one can fairly describe as the, probably the most controversial decisions to be ever be taken by the Sierra Leone court, Taylor was transferred to The Hague, the Netherlands, on June 30, 2006. This was after the Security Council had given its imprimatur, its stamp of approval among the decision, and the, of course the Dutch authorities had indicated um, in exercise of their consent, willingness to have his trial be conducted on their territory. Up to today, the fact that Taylor, who is the star accused, was transferred outside of the country for trial remains controversial in Sierra Leone. In any event, a month before the trial opened, on May 29, 2007, his 17-count indictment was reduced to 11 counts. The trial formally opened on June 4, 2007, and I happened to be sitting right there in the courtroom, heading the defense office. Taylor had counsel. But because the accused fired his legal team on the day of the opening of the trial and insisted that he would represent himself due to inadequate time and resources that had been allocated to his provisionally assigned counsel, a fellow by the name of Karim Khan, the case had to be put on hold. And it took until January 2008 when the office that I was a part of, the Principal Defender's Office, found replacement counsel for Mr. Taylor in August of 2007. I had been appointed, court-appointed uh, counsel for Mr. Taylor, so I was, it was my job to defend the accused by order of the court because it terminated his counsel. Until that day, we got uh, the counsel that Mr. Taylor needed in August, and the chamber gave them time and needed to give them time 
to read, in, read into the massive case file of over 33,000 pages of disclosure. And this is just the beginning of the disclosure from the prosecution. Of course, the defendant is entitled to receive all of the evidence that the prosecution would use against him so he can exercise his right to defend himself. In the interim period when Taylor was representing himself, I was the head of that office in The Hague, and we can move on uh, from that and I'll talk about uh, the trial. So the trial resumed um, in January of 2008 and it continued really without too many significant interruptions. There were some interruptions, but in the scheme of things, they were not as significant as we've seen in comparable cases in international tribunal. And Mr. Taylor, in the exercise of his right, took the stand and testified in his own defense for several months. He was there on the stand. Closing arguments were heard on April 8, February 8, sorry, 2011, and then final briefs by the uh, prosecution and defense were turned in about a month later. And then the trial chamber took some time, um, slightly into the next year, on April 26th, I believe, 2012, uh, they rendered their judgment. This is a long-awaited judgment in which Taylor was convicted on all the 11 counts as an aider and an abetter and a planner of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other serious violations of international humanitarian law by his RUF subordinates in Sierra Leone. Remember, Mr. Taylor was not found to have been in Sierra Leone, but under international law, he could be held liable for the actions of his subordinates and the people that he supported who committed the crimes. This had been a precedent notion of command responsibility that goes way back to Nuremberg. On May 30, 2012, uh, Taylor was sentenced to 50 years imprisonment. He appealed his conviction, and of course the appeals chamber upheld uh, the convictions and the sentence. And by September 2013, more or less the Taylor case had closed. And that was effectively the jewel in the crown of the special court. It's the most important trial involving an important personality who had a lot of power, who had meddled in the Sierra Leone conflict. And today, uh, Mr. Taylor is serving his sentence in the United Kingdom, where by virtue of what they call enforcement of sentence agreements that had been entered into by the SCSL and the UK, he would remain in jail. The Eight AFRC, CDF, and RUF convicts were sent to Rwanda near the, uh, near the capital, Kigali, again under a separate enforcement of sentence agreement between the government of Rwanda and the SESL. They were transferred there in October 2009. Now what is interesting, recording this lecture in October of 2017, so since 2009, Fofana, who had served a third of his sentence, Fofana being from the CDF group, and consistent with international tribunal practice, was granted provisional conditional release and is returned to Sierra Leone as of August 2014. So actually Fofana is now living back in Sierra Leone under some conditions where he has to report to the police and so on, stay away from victims and obviously intimidating victims and any violation would send him back to jail. Another convict from the CDF group of cases, Ali Kondewai, uh, also applied and was granted provisional release as recently as May 2017. Now in an interesting postscript from the AFRC set of cases, I remember the fellow Alex Tamba Brimer, who was the first accused? He passed away in June 2016. At that point, he had served 13 years of his 50 year sentence. And if you're paying close attention, as I'm sure you are, you'll have noted 13 years. And the reason is they account for the time that the person was waiting for trial. So it's not 13 years since the case ended but he has credit for the period uh, while he was in pre-trial detention. And so he passed away in Rwanda, having served 13 of the 50-year sentence that was given to him by the tribunal for his actions in Sierra Leone. And his family 
was giving back his body and was buried in Sierra Leone. Meanwhile, in respect of former Liberian President Taylor, who again, you remember, is in jail in Great Britain, he has expressed a desire to be returned to the African continent and based on several really interesting arguments about the cultural environment that he is in, but the judges of the court have denied that request. So at this point, we've discussed the trials in the war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other international crimes context carried out by the SESR. These are the trials. There are several other smaller cases that were more about contempt and so on that we will not discuss. We don't have time in this lecture, but you must be aware that they are there. They are more uh, for witness interference and intimidation and so on, and they relate to investigators and people of that kind, not the substantive trials as I would consider them as the ones we've just discussed. But it's interesting to have a little footnote here to several additional indictments that were issued by the court for RUF leader Fode Sanko. Remember Sanko being the leader who had been arrested and at one point held in jail. He had been the vice president. He had been the leader who turned out to not have the loyalty of his battlefield commanders. Well, him and a key ally of his, a fellow by the name of Sam Bokari, a.k.a. Mosquito. They had some really interesting acronyms for the, for, the, for the fighters in Sierra Leone. Mosquito, Sam Bokari. And then AFRC junta leader, remember the guy that sprung out of jail, Major Johnny Paul Kuruma, to make him the leader when they took over the country in, uh, 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 and sent President Kaba back into a neighboring state? Well, I'm not discussing those cases here, but those indictments were issued, and because Sanko's death could be confirmed, he died, and Bokari was killed somewhere in Liberia, of course the judges withdrew those indictments because the deaths could be confirmed. But there is one outstanding accused person, Major Kuruma from that AFRC group, whose indictment to this day remains valid. He is the only remaining fugitive from the SESL. While there was evidence alleging that he is dead in the course of the Taylor trial in The Hague, evidence that was brought up actually by the prosecution, because that has been deemed inconclusive, they couldn't bring the body in the same way or show or have a medical proof, the provision was made for Koroma's trial in the statute of the residual special court for Sierra Leone in the event that he would surface at some point in the future. So if Koroma is alive and it turns out that he, an authority that is cooperating and willing to turn him over to the residual special court, he would face charges. So there is no sitting out international justice. Very interesting footnote to add. And if you compare that to the Rwanda tribunal and the Yugoslav tribunal, Yugoslav tribunal completed all its cases. All the fugitives were turned over eventually. And in the Rwanda tribunal setting, we had a number of individuals who are still missing, and they haven't been turned over. And in Sierra Leone, you have this one case that remains, with the possibility, possibility remaining that the person is still alive. So we've discussed the trials, we've discussed the establishment of the special court, we've discussed the history of the Sierra Leone conflict. Let me now shift to the final part of my lecture to give you my concluding remarks. And I will want to do a couple of things here. So when I started this lecture, I mentioned that my, one of my primary goals was to introduce the special court, but also to assess the legacy and contributions of the SESL to international criminal law and practice. By way of reminder, this concept of legacy, as we used it, I said it should be taken to mean a specific reference to the legal rules, principles, practices, and norms that the SESL was expected to leave behind for current and future generations of international, internationalized, and national courts charged with the responsibility to prosecute the same or similar international crimes. Now, on one level, much like Justice Robert Jackson argued in relation to the Nuremberg Tribunal in 1946, it's only been about four years since the Special Court completed its work. So it could be argued, I 
incredibly, that is perhaps too early to talk about the legacy of the SESL. After the events, you know, they haven't, much time hasn't elapsed for us to appreciate the full impact and legacy of the tribunal. And if you think about it, there's some credit to the argument because when we talked about Justice Jackson, we talked about the late 40s and the Nuremberg legacy was only really felt, I suggested to you, in the early 1990s, decades later. So in a sense, it presumptuous to sit there and say, oh, well, we'll talk about the legacy of the SESL. Trials just ended not that long ago. And history proved Justice Jackson right. And although he had presently observed that it was possible that the Nuremberg trials would become the biggest moral and legal advance from World War II, humanity only really, truly felt the full reverberations of the IMT's legacy many, many, many decades later. And of course, it was until the early 1990s, as I mentioned already, in particularly 1993, 1994, that we realized we, we could invoke, the UN could invoke the Nuremberg precedent to create the truly international criminal tribunal, the first truly international criminal tribunal. It's not tribunal set up by the victor states, but by the international community coming together to condemn the perpetrators and the violations of international law that occurred. This, of course, in respect of the ICTY and also uh, the uh, ICTR for Rwanda. Ultimately, of course, as the experience from that example, the Nuremberg example, tells us um, the works of many scholars and academics and, and commentators and even states, we can credibly argue that the question not, is not whether there is a legacy, um, but what kind of legacy there is. And we could assess some aspects of the special court legacy. Indeed, that is an appropriate question to have at this time, in my view. Even if we can accept that it is a little bit premature to say we can identify the whole of the legacy of the SES, we may not even be able to imagine all of the legacy. So maybe down the line, the relevance of the SES example would be even more uh, pronounced depending on how history runs. Yet at the same time, it's never too late, never too early in my view, sorry, to start to begin to imagine what the likely impact could be. And in any event, much as was with the case with the IMT and since then the UN tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, we don't need the tribunal's entire legacy because none of it all of it is necessarily indeterminate. The aspects of it that are fairly de determinate. Some aspects are relatively more determinate and may therefore already be discernible. Others are less determinate and may remain hidden for a while, taking years and years, if not decades, to come out of the shadows. Such is no doubt the case with the expectation, which was floated when the Sierra Leone court was created back in early 2000, that it might help lead to national reconciliation to its prosecutions. Now, reconciliation is both a goal and a process. As a goal, it signifies an end point after forgiveness. As a process, it implies a movement on a spectrum towards forgiveness. In my view, both can occur in individuals and in many ways to entire societies, both will require time. So both, not all of the parts of the legacy require that kind of time to be identified and evaluated. So let me just say, if we judge this SESL by Justice Jackson's Nuremberg standard, remember in the beginning of whether the court has achieved what it was primarily set up to do, and in this case, obviously, it is to prosecute those bearing greatest responsibility for the serious crimes within its jurisdictions through fair trials that comport with the requirements of its statute and international human rights law, then I'm comfortable saying that it has. The examples of the cases that we discussed stand as proof of this. 
Indeed, the SCSL made an important contribution to the people of Sierra Leone, in my view, by prosecuting a total of nine military-slash-political leaders that are found to be among those most responsible for what happened in the country. It did so through the investigations and the prosecutions in the so-called AFRC, CDF, RUF, and Taylor cases, all of which I summarized earlier in the course of the lecture and have mentioned at different points. Although it is legitimate, entirely legitimate, to ask whether nine trials constituted enough justice for the horrors that occurred in Sierra Leone, especially given the scale and the widespread atrocities experienced during that terrible 11-year conflict, and to even ask the further question of the millions of dollars, up north towards of 220 million, expended in the prosecutions, those trials constitute, in my view, at least some measure of justice. To me, and I suspect to many other Sierra Leoneans as well, some justice seems better than no justice. This is all the more so considering the reality that with the Sierra Leonean government's endorsement of that much-hated amnesty clause in the 1999 peace accord, which of course still helped to end the hostilities by conferring the impunity on all the killers, it seems that but for the creation of the SCSL, no justice might have been meted out by the Sierra Leonean domestic courts for the heinous crimes committed during the latter part of that country's infamous civil war. Indeed, today, many known middle and lower-ranking associates of those perpetrators of the heinous offenses that were prosecuted by the SCSL today roam the streets of Freetown, the capital, the Sierra capital, seemingly secure in the knowledge that they will never be prosecuted. And we have not even mentioned the apparent lack of legal and institutional capacity to prosecute international offenses in the largely corrupt and compromised national judicial system. So in the end then, in the end, for me, if nothing else, the legacy of the SCSL might stand more as a symbol of justice than actual justice for Sierra Leone. After a decade of pure mayhem, the SCSL's achievements, which to some may seem a bit meager, when you compare them to the kinds of prosecutions you could have within a national court, for example, they stand to demonstrate clearly that the international community can, in collaboration with a concerned state, where there is a political will, successfully join forces in collaboration with other states to continue the global fight against impunity. Sierra Leone and the Special Court showed a bold experiment like that can work. The point has been proved, at least if one case, and of course now the subsequent iterations of hybrid tribunals can be uh, uh, seen as proof of this. Ultimately, what might be very important, one of the most important aspects, is that some justice was dispensed on behalf of some of the victims. And it has left little, although it hasn't completely closed off the conversation, but it has left very little space for denial that horrific crimes were committed against innocents in Sierra Leone. In fact, when in, you look at the SESL judgments and you compare them to the findings of the Truth Commission, the same names tend to pop up. So the people who were prosecuted by the court in an independent process, their names had come up there as well. So the, obviously, both the commission, if you take the work of the commission, the Truth Commission and the court, you realize they got it right because the same figures who were at the leadership, not everybody, but many of them, so in the end, the result for me is that it's not a perfect outcome because I would have had more prosecutions. A lot of people would have had more prosecutions. But a common narrative of justice in the name of the people of Sierra Leone and for the people of Sierra Leone has emerged. Even more importantly, perhaps, the guns have fallen silent and peace and the rule of law have returned to Sierra Leone.
Now, it will be a bit presumptuous for the supporters of the court, people like myself who've worked there, who make our careers in international law, to claim credit must go to the court for all these developments. But I think it can justifiably claim credit for making some small contributions towards the achievement of the current post-conflict dispensation in Sierra Leone. So let me try to bring it together as we wind down towards the end. As a general matter, we can advance essentially two principal types of arguments about the positive legacy and impact of the SCSL. First, if we focus on assessments of the legal legacy as found in the statute and jurisprudence of the tribunal, I talked earlier about quite a few of those uh, big cases, we may generally conclude that the court has made some useful, though not to say perfect, contributions to the emerging system of international justice. I would like to pause here and just give a few of the landmark decisions just to underscore the point. In the Taylor case, the court's decision from May 31, 2004 on immunity from jurisdiction in respect of Mr. Taylor, where he argued that customary international law does not permit him to be tried by a tribunal of this kind. Appeals Chamber rejected this. It did not issue a perfectly reasoned decision, but it moved the ball further towards accountability. Another decision on the lack of jurisdiction, this is the Ali Kondewa case, um, lack of jurisdiction and abuse of process, amnesty provided by the Lome Accord, May 25, 2004. Again, the court said amnesties cannot be granted for international crimes. A bit controversial, but now coded more and more as opening that door even further towards even more accountability for atrocity crimes, irrespective of whether amnesties are purportedly given by the state, because states cannot of their own decide to amnesty crimes that other states are entitled to keep alive and remember. I could give more examples, but let me just focus on one last one, the decision on the preliminary motion on lack of jurisdiction from May 31st, 2004, in the Sam Hinga Norman case, and this one dealt with the issue of child recruitment. And that decision has featured heavily, as I mentioned earlier, in the trials at the International Criminal Court in the Lubanga case that also uh, uh, was addressing the same offense, essentially. Of course, this is not to say and imply that the court did not face challenges or it could not be criticized for some of the ways it addressed certain problems. I'm not going to claim that. I think, like every human institution, it wasn't perfect. They could have done a lot of things better, but they did a lot with what they had. So that's the first big takeaway. Second, though we did not spend much time on these more institutional issues, such as the creation of the defense office that I mentioned and the outreach office, I kind of explained why they are important. But I didn't develop them. And then the idea of legacy, the legacy phase working group, if you recall, we can conclude that the court added some innovations in the practice that are added of great added value to the design and the architecture of international criminal law institutions going forward. In other words, the trials, the guilty verdicts, the reasoned judgments, and the factual findings that were bequeathed to the people of Sierra Leone are in many ways the SESL's primary legacy. But also by fleshing out international criminal law and applying it to new factual, very complex situations, as well as innovating new institutional structures and road testing and those structures, seeing what works and what does not, the SCSL has offered both the positive lessons of what we might look to do and what we might call a negative lesson of what not to do. It still is a legacy. So in this context, the issue really in my mind is not whether the special court added or contributed, it has, and with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and see how much it could have added how much else it could have added to Sierra Leone, to Africa, and to international criminal justice. 
We can step back even further from these two big points and examine what we could call the lessons of DSCSL, and this can be grouped into those two big categories, the big basket of the positive lessons and the lessons that are not so positive. And let me just underscore, as I close, in terms of the positive lessons, among others, just key things that I cannot emphasize enough. For anyone who studies the special court, who takes an interest in the special court, who's watching this lecture, the court's jurisprudential achievements in respect of amnesty for crimes and crimes against humanity, treatment of head of state immunity, child recruitment, forced marriage, remember the forced marriage as a crime against humanity, the war crimes of attacks against UN peacekeepers, these were, in my view, likely to be among the most significant jurisprudential legacies. These legacies are the ones potentially will be consulted by other courts, they are already being consulted, and will serve as helpful precedents for future international trials. We've already seen this in several cases. Again, I mentioned the ICC already, where that Sierra Leone jurisprudence was featured heavily, both in the trial process, in the process of getting to judgment in respect of the Lubanga case, but also in the final judgment as well, and all the way to the appeals chamber, when the appeals chamber was now determining some of those questions. And then we look at the ICRC commentary on customary international humanitarian law with respect to child recruitment, you see the citations to the special court. And again, it's going to be something that I expect to see more of as we go forward. Regarding the practice, if we move away from the jurisprudence, I already talked about the head of state immunity issue and the amnesty, so I'm not going to repeat that. The court's laudable attempt to experiment with the creation of a defense office, to, ex to engage in really extensive and deep outreach to the population and have a two-way engagement about the justice process, and to plan its legacy, will all likely be remembered for adding significant value, in my view, to the corpus juries of international criminal law and procedure. Here too, in my view, the impact of the SCSL can already be felt. For example, we take the defense innovation from the SCSL, it essentially has served as inspiration for the first such autonomous office in the history of international criminal law at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Remember when I talked about it in the context of Sierra Leone, I said it was a semi-autonomous office within the registry. Well. In the Lebanon tribunal, they've taken even further and made it fully autonomous, which is better and more consistent with the rights of the defendant to a fair trial. In the same vein, the SCSL's outreach experience in country, it has essentially now served in many ways as a model for the work of the ICC. And in some of the cases, it's very interesting to me that the staff members who run the outreach section, they now run the outreach efforts of the ICC in some situations, situation countries in East Africa. They bring in the experience that they learn of how to reach out to the population, engage with the population for the ICC to benefit from. If you turn to the reverse, what I call the negative lessons or the things not to do, well, th that is those that we might not replicate, right? We can examine some of this closely, okay? We will have to look at the situations and see what we could borrow. There are several of those. I'm not going to spend too much time on them because of time. It's already a long lecture. But I can make two points and underscore those points. One, those points, sorry. One, the UN's practice, which started with Sierra Leone, and I said I'll come back to this point, to create ad hoc tribunals with limited jurisdiction over a few persons bearing greatest responsibility is perhaps worth reconsidering in the future. And I'm going to be very frank about this. The person's responsible language gives more, in the experiences that we've seen with Sierra Leone, gives more scope for the prosecutor. So you could have the broader formulation of jurisdiction and let the prosecutor choose to focus on those bearing greatest responsibility, as opposed to writing it that way in the statute, because it led a lot of litigation and time was wasted in the tribunal. In the end, while such an approach to have the greatest responsibility language could be the pragmatic one, the number of prosecutions yielded may lead to dissatisfaction about the quantity of justice that was served to the victims of mass atrocity crimes in a given situation. This regrettably often leaves a bad taste in victims about the outcome of the justice process. So it's a policy consideration that I would urge be had about accountability and the direction of accountability. Secondly, on the things not to repeat list, as a structural matter, 
The SESL experiment suggests that states should work hard, the international community can work hard, not to set up such justice institutions, and they generate high, sometimes super high, expectations in the local victim and even international advocacy communities as to the quality and the quantity of the justice that they would deliver, only to then deny them of the requisite financial means to succeed. The state should certainly not subject these institutions to the vagaries of donations-based funding. And this is a point that Secretary General Annan kept emphasizing to the Security Council in urging reconsideration of the model. It's a point that I now hear the legal counsel of the UN make when he talks about international tribunals as a lesson from Sierra Leone. And indeed, in my view, if there is a single lesson that we can draw for the international community from the SCSL experience in terms of the design of these tribunals, it will have to be this. International criminal tribunals should never be funded primarily or solely by voluntary contributions from states. That the SESL struggled throughout its life to secure the most basic funding to do its work was an open secret, and in my view, that was bad enough. But going forward for future ad hoc tribunals, the implication seems clear enough. If voluntary funding is the only way to go forward, as opposed to assessed funding, assessed contributions, as was the case for the Yugoslav and Rwanda tribunals, then we should give serious consideration to alternative ways of dispensing justice, such as creating special panels or an international crimes division within the national courts of that state. So as has happened in respect of, for example, the Habre chamber that I mentioned earlier in Senegal. Now, depending on the specific factors at play in the given situation, such as whether this could lead to possible bias in prosecutions, this could prove to be a more cost-effective approach compared to creating an entirely new and autonomous and expensive institution. Of course, we'll have to watch to ensure that the process is fair. Another benefit is that if it's done well, such efforts might help to build local capacity to prosecute crimes, a benefit that was largely hoped for but hardly materialized in Sierra Leone. Finally, in closing, I hope that our engagement through this lecture on the work of the SCSL, which is the third main UN-supported and sponsored ad hoc international criminal courts, taken as a whole, has assisted you in understanding a bit more about the achievements and shortcomings of the SCSL. It was indeed one of the most significant internationally supported anti-impunity initiatives in post-Cold War era Africa. And I have a recommendation. There's a lot of material on the SCSL out there and literature that has emerged. So for anyone who wants to pursue, I could not cover all the issues here. But it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this lecture on the SCSL.